And I'm Kat. And welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale, and Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We are just two babes who are too glam to give a damn while we obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. Yes. And Merry Christmas, Chatter. Yes. Merry Christmas. You like my you like my ears? I love I'm it. You look to be a little festive. You're a little reindeer. You're a hot little reindeer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's your disclaimer. Okay. So I've got two. I mentioned this to you before, but I just came off a vacation where it was 85 degrees and I get home and that night it's 25 degrees. So of course my sinuses are going on. So I apologize ahead of time. If one, I sound nasally and two, I may have to give a little <laughs> to the side, <laughs> but here's your true disclaimer. Okay. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of potentially violent scenarios. A listener discretion is advised. Yes. Yeah, so you've been officially warned and Kat, where did you go for vacation? So we went on a cruise with some friends and uh-huh. my son and his girlfriend. There were six of us total. And we went, had a couple days out at sea. We had two ports in Mexico. And let me tell you, it is the most gorgeous water down there I've ever seen. And one of the things that, so we went on this excursion where we went snorkeling and the guy was telling us about, you know, kind of the clarity of the water and why it's so clear and essentially how the coral reef there is like mm-hmm. a filter for the water. And you'll mm-hmm. see that in some areas and then maybe not in some other areas. You're like, why isn't the water so clear? Well, really, I mean, kind of the ecosystem and how it works underwater it really made sense, you know, but it is some of the clearest water I have ever seen. Yeah. We, were, we were supposed to go diving mm-hmm. um, and I think they got rid of that excursion. So we ended up not doing that. And we didn't want to do anything outside of what the cruise ship like excursion because they guarantee mm-hmm. you to be back in time and uh we didn't want to miss the boat so <laughs> yes yeah I have friends that have missed that boat and it is not fun trying no. to uh, catch up no I can imagine Mm-mm. but we got some tequila we got some authentic Mexican tequila and brought nice. it home so it was great mm-hmm. yeah so it was so much fun what have you been up to I have been well I've been keeping up on Dexter as you know, yeah. I am a avid mm-hmm. fan, yes. um, and I would suggest anybody listening, uh, check it out, Dexter New Blood. It yep. is amazing. And I got into a couple of other series. Uh, I've also been watching a um, series on Hulu called Big Sky. Okay. And I it's heard really, of it, yeah. It's really, really good. And it's, it's a thriller, and it's, you know, crime-related, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's about two girls who, one's a private investigator, the other one's a sheriff, and they deal with some real sick, sick criminals, and storyline is- right up our alley. Yes, yes. The storyline <laughs> is great. So, oh, actually, I did want to tell you, too, when we got back, mm-hmm. we binged Tiger King, and I had, <laughs> I never saw the first part. I never saw oh. the first season. But they just came out with a second season on Netflix. And I thought, well, let me watch the first season. And so my husband said he tried to watch the first episode, the very first episode, didn't, couldn't get into it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, let's just see what this is about. And holy cow, that is crazy. Yeah, there's a Tiger King 2 coming out. Well, no, yeah, we watched that. We watched the second part. Um, so oh. Second, yeah, it's on oh, Netflix. I- it's out. Oh, I gotta, I gotta watch it. I only watched the first one. And, um, a question, do you think Carol did it? Did she kill her first husband? I, yes. You I do. think so. I, you know what? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, some, it would sometimes. be very, it would be very creative. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's just weird that he never showed up however many years later. Right. At mm-hmm. all. 
Mm-hmm. So his disappearance is suspicious to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also I, you know, afterwards, and I don't want to get into it too much because I don't want to spoil you on episode or on the second season. Okay. But I will tell you, I think Joe's going to get out of jail. Is he? Oh, you know what? Don't spoil it. I need I to won't. watch it. I okay. need to binge that. Okay. <laughs> that is on my hit list. Yes. Uh, no pun intended. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Although, like I said before, I do know a couple of guys that I would be to a tiger, but we're just going to keep that in another episode. Okay. Yes. So all I want for Christmas this year is crime in a hitman. Just kidding. Oh, ooh, that sounds sexy. <laughs> but the scary fact is that the holidays sometimes will basically turn our cheers into fears and our delight into fright. Mm-hmm. It can be some of the scariest time of year when it comes to crimes, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll get into the Christmas background just a little bit first. Okay, so cool. the Encyclopedia Britannica describes Christmas as a Christian festival celebrating the birth of Jesus. But in the early 19th century, it also became a secular holiday observed by Christians and non-Christians alike. Most contemporary Christians' customs do not have anything to do with theological origination, such as like Christmas trees or anything like that. And as a matter of fact, Christmas trees were documented as far back as the 1400s. And this was documented in German um, nonfiction literature, which Uh included placing branches of fir trees inside of your home. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. In the documentation, in the as far as that as the 1600s, these fir trees were also decorated. So they brought the branches in first, and then they started to bring in the whole tree, and then they started to decorate the tree. Do mm-hmm. you know what they decorated them with for the first thing? What they used? No. What? Handles. What? I, <laughs> well, I can only imagine how many of them actually caught fire back then. Right? Not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not thinking that you probably needed to... I don't know, water the tree or even the branches. Let's say they just brought branches in and they placed candles near them. They didn't have, you know, the battery ran candles that we do now, the flickering ones. Mm -mm. You know, they had the actual candles with wax and everything. And I can only imagine. So they started with four candles that signified the four Sundays of Advent. And these candles were also used to decorate the wreaths made of fur. The fur race became a tradition in the early 1900s. Okay. So the next thing, do you know when the practice of gift giving started? I do not, no. So as early as the late 1800s. So theologically, it reminds Christians of God's gift to his people, who is Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And the three wise men brought baby Jesus, gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold to celebrate the birth of the Savior. Also, Santa Claus and the non-Christian you know, realm originated as St. Nicholas in Europe, became a family giver of gifts, bringing candy and toys to children. And this developed into the role of Santa Claus as we know it today from mm-hmm. the ever famous poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. That's kind of where we get the thought of what Santa Claus is for today. And then lastly, sending Christmas cards also started in Europe in the 19th century. Really? That is crazy. Okay. All right. So, and when I was writing this, the first thing that kind of I thought of was, okay, when I was in middle school, I was dating this guy. I broke up with him. I say dating. I mean, what 12 year olds do when they date, right? (laughs) You hook up. (laughs) And I broke up with him right before Christmas. And I remember he was, he called me 
he's like, ho, 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 Mary bitch fist. And I was like, oh my God, it's so awful. I was crushed. Like, I mean, I felt bad for breaking up with my guest right before Christmas, but that's something that resonates with me. Like 30 years, whatever, 30 plus years later. Isn't that crazy? I actually like it. Mary Bitchmas. I actually want to put that on a (laughs) t-shirt. So unfortunately, some of these cherished traditions that we have have also been tangled in tinsel. Mm -hmm. I got an article from Only in Your State website that lists the 14 most disturbing crimes in U.S. history. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. So in in Georgia, the first one, the case of the so-called stolen chocolate. In 2004, a man dressed as St. Nick lost his temper and killed a 74-year-old woman when he hit her with a two-by-four piece of wood because he was convinced she stole more than $100 worth of Hershey's chocolate from him. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He was sentenced to life. Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Good boy. So where I'm at now in South Carolina, number two. The case mm-hmm. of the Santa on the motorcycle. And actually, I lived here then, and I, I think I remember this one. So in 2006, again, a man dressed up as Santa was riding a decked out motorcycle. So it had lights and tinsel and, you know, up to the nines and asked a family while he stopped at the gas station if they wanted to see his reindeer. And that was in a sidecar of his motorcycle. The children walked near the motorcycle and this little St. Nicker grabbed the eight-year-old girl and took off. Well, dad was like, oh, hell no, chased after him, retrieved his daughter, and then the kidnapper was arrested. Oh, my God. That's terrible. And that poor child, that child, (laughs) Christmas is ruined forever. Oh, my God. Yes, I can only imagine. Mm. Okay, number three, in Ohio, the case of taking candy from Santa. (laughs) In 2009, a 12-year-old girl was chased after hiding in the bushes from a Santa in an attempt to give her her candy. So the Santa was like, here, little girl, let me give you some candy. And the little girl kind of freaked out. He then chased her into a local store where police were called and later stated the man was actually mentally unstable. Oh, my God. Again, poor little girl, right? Yeah. By Santa. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Number four in Alabama. The case of the Santa Claus burglary. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually we can associate Santa costume wearers with either donations or gifts or something cheerful. However, mm-hmm. when a Santa knocked on her door, the man punched her in the face and attempted to rob a college age female. The Santa man fled after he could not gain entry. She fought back. Yeah. Good for her. She punched yes. Santa in the face. In the face. <laughs> <laughs> Number five in Texas. Case of the most infamous Christmas bank robbery. This 100-year-old case includes another Santa imposter. He walked into Cisco's First National Bank with three armed men and was able to take money and free female hostages. His car ran out of gas while he was trying to escape. He was captured and sentenced to 99 years. But the kicker is, while he was in prison, the prison actually itself was invaded by angry, like angry mobs of, in, from the public who were so mad that he actually did this and they ended up killing him while he was in his cell. Wow. You know something? I'm noticing a high, like the, they really throw the book at a Santa impersonator. <laughs> oh, there's more. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. The next one in New Hampshire, the case of the disorderly mall Santa. In 2005, <laughs> a 52-year-old man dressed in a Santa costume decided to drop his trousers in the middle of the mall. He was arrested even though he had sweatpants on underneath. It was still indecent exposure, I guess, of what he was trying to do intentionally, right? 
Mm-hmm. Number seven in Michigan, the case of the Italian Hall disaster. This one, nothing to do with Santa imposters, but in 1913 in Calumet, Michigan, a group of striking mine workers and their families decided to, you know, take a pause in their strike and gather for the holiday. Someone thought it would be funny and yell fire. But this evacuation led to 73 people being killed from the stampede of people trying to get out. Oh my God. Not that's so funny insane. now. No, that's yeah. that's a crazy amount of people that were killed. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, so what a hundred years ago, whatnot, right? Wow. Crazy. So number eight in Louisiana, the case of the unusual Christmas gift. Mm-hmm. A man on hard times finding Christmas for his son, trying to find a Christmas gift for his son, thought he would rob a pet store, steal the money, and then also stole a couple of snakes who he tried to gift to his son for Christmas. Weird gift. That's a weird That's a gift. Weird like, gift. I'm sorry. I mean, maybe I guess some kids would he, like what? that, he, but he couldn't grab a puppy. Were there no puppies? <laughs> like, I, well, I'm sure there was a puppy, but oh he wanted God. to get a couple snakes. I don't know. In Florida, here you go, hon. This is for you. <laughs> the case of the stolen baby Jesus. Oh God. In 2007, an 18-year-old woman stole a baby Jesus ceramic figurine, which was rigged with a GPS system. Jesus. (laughs) The cops found the baby and the lady who said she didn't think she would get caught. And what's, I don't know what's worse, stealing the baby itself or needing to place a GPS inside of it out of fear that it would be stolen. Listen, I feel like I can represent Florida at this point. It was stolen before. <laughs> That's why there's GPS on it. Yes. I speak yes. for the entire state, okay? Um, so back in South Carolina, number 10, the case of the intoxicated St. Nick. A man driving a float for a holiday parade was clocked at driving 60, 60 miles an hour when it was only made to go a few miles per hour. <laughs> you mean in a- the, on the parade, like on yes. the street? Yes, during the parade. He was arrested for driving while intoxicated, having an open container, and a few other charges, as you can imagine, like reckless driving, endangering the public, you know, whatever. Yeah, because at that point, the car is a illegal, it's it's a weapon, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, number 11, our birth state, New York. Yeah. The case of the crazed shoppers. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, New York City on Black Friday, what that's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in 2008, when the when doors opened at a mall, the mob began to stampede into the stores, killing an employee on their way to get to the best deals. Many shoppers, even after hearing an employee was killed, continued to shop and complained that they waited all night to get in. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. I totally yeah. have PTSD from that time in my life. <laughs> totally, and and honestly, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. 12 in Oregon, the case of a stolen Christmas tree. So during the economic crisis of 2008, one man was caught dragging a stolen Christmas tree down the street at three o'clock in the morning, probably so he didn't have to pay for it. You know what? I feel bad for that. Yeah. Sad. If I was a police officer, I would let that one go. I would be like, okay, I'll help you carry it home. Let's not do this again. Mm, Okay. I just got a treat for my family. I'm not going to cry. Not going to (laughs) cry. Okay. 13, again, back in Ohio, the case of the terrorized Frosty float. So two teenagers attacked a 12-foot Frosty airfield character, you know, like those yard, you know, characters or whatever. They attacked it in a resident's front yard, stabbing it with a knife repeatedly. This was caught on camera from like the home 
you know, the home camera, uh-huh. a security camera, and they were arrested and fined. Wow. I don't why attack a frosty just because you can. Yeah. I don't well, know. I, and that was in Ohio. See, I can yeah. see that being in New York because in New York where like, I remember I was one of those people where I had like <laughs> this little post stamp of lawn in front of my house. And I would throw like mm-hmm. 10 different of those. What do you call it? those inflatable yeah. trees? And I, I mean, yeah. it was just, so I can well, see. It, it was funny. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause when we went shopping, cause we needed to get a new tree, the tree that we had, I gave to my son, we wanted to get a new one. And when we were out looking at the new decor and stuff, we were talking about getting some new yard decorations. And he's like, my husband's like anything but float, like, but like the characters airfield. No, it's like, yeah. I'm not doing that. And I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. So the last one in Washington mm-hmm. state, the case of the Santa break-in mm. while well, Santa, well, dressed in a Santa suit, of course, the man attempted to rob a house by entering in through the chimney. He actually got stuck and had to get help from the fire department. Originally, he said he was just trying to get his backpack, which magically fell down a stranger's chimney, I guess. But he was arrested and sentenced to 17 months. So these snippets of the story are just a glimpse of how society has tweaked the holidays and is really a prime time for crime. I mean, it's it's an opportunity. But there's a couple of reasons for this. So psychologist Dr. Sherry Hamby, editor of the journal called Psychology and Violence, mm-hmm. said that there are several factors for the spike. One of which is that people are off work, right? So idle time, idle hands, they get themselves into trouble. When people have free time, they just have more time to cause troubles. And another reason is also stress. Depression peaks during this time that can cause pressure on spending time with family, spending money, you know, or not having enough money, being lonely, you know, just the holidays can really spike. Yes. Another psychologist, Dr. Brian Kennard said that it is also a crime of opportunity. And it can be a time where people plan gifts, drink alcohol, potentially do drugs, which mm-hmm. has a lot of time give the people, you know, mm-hmm. what is it called? The uh, less ambition. Alcohol. Yes. Like, <laughs> to do the right thing. I guess. Yeah. Like, but people are uh, just away from home for the holidays. And sometimes when they're out shopping and it's not just the shopping mall, like purse grabbing thing that we kind of traditionally think of, but also now this time of year, the digital purse grabbing with scams mm-hmm. and other like bogus donation sites and that kind of thing. And the gruesome fact is that crime rates rise. And according to the Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research in 2016, a study had shown between Christmas Eve December 24th and in the day after New Year's, January 2nd, in that time frame, which day do you think had the highest spike for violent offenses? I'm thinking um, probably right after Christmas, like the 26th. Nationally, that's a good guess. That's Boxing Day for our uh, English and um, Canadian brethren out there. It was actually okay. New Year's Eve. So between 9 p.m. and midnight, the biggest reason alcohol consumption, if you can imagine, right? It goes um, on in this in this survey that says that violent offenses are described as murder, attempted murder, manslaughter, domestic violence related to assault, non-domestic violence related to assault, assaulting police, sexual assault, indecent assault or acts of indecency or other sexual offenses, robbery without a weapon, robbery with a firearm, and then robbery with a weapon that's not a firearm. 
Oh so, boy, <laughs> right. are we busy, yeah. man, oh man. So that's considered violent offenses. And, and that's report, all before the, is that all before the ball drops? Yeah, all before the ball <laughs> drops, yes. And one report of the National Crime Victimization Survey found only two times, two sorry, two kinds of crimes increased in December, robbery and personal larceny. So that mm -hmm. differentiates a little bit from other surveys, right? And we know yeah. that surveys are only as good as the information that's inputted into it, but more violent crimes like murder typically don't spike, this one survey said, it, but it can make your anxiety spike, of course. Yeah. And not that it has to do with any of like of the today's case that you're going to call, but we know all about this holiday and the horror that's kind of surrounding it. And people could just get anxiety yeah. thinking about the holidays in themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So one crime chat fun fact, when a Bailey Sarian, our girl, Bailey Sarian, her, she did mm -hmm. a recent uh, Murder Mystery Makeup Monday video on Natalie Holloway. And did you know mm -hmm. that her mother, Beth, Natalie Holloway's mother, actually dated John Ramsey, John Benny Ramsey's father for quite a bit. I did know that. Yeah. He made a, he made a comment of why or what brought them together. And what he said is they were both dealing with the same level mm -hmm. of grief and mm -hmm. that was their connection. But it's funny because I think Beth Holloway said something like, oh, they're in a relationship. And right. John Ramsey was like, oh, we're just seeing each other. Oh, who knows? But it's always defined differently, isn't it? Yes, it's so true. <laughs> so true. Yes. But I can see why they, they connected. I definitely sure. can see the connection there. Uh, speaking of which, are you ready for our mystery today? I am. Yes. Let's begin. So I chose my crime chat case because today, uh, well, this year marks the 25th anniversary of one of the most notorious murders, uh, unsolved crimes in America. Mm -hmm. I'm going to cover the uh, case of John Bonet. There's a lot of opinions and theories on what happened to her and who did this. I will mention as many as I can, um, <laughs> but I'm going to stick to the chain of events and the actual developments within along the way. Okay. I have broken up the story into like nine individual parts just to keep on track. And because the theories out there, they just make the story really muddy. Yeah. There are a lot out there. Yeah. And I don't want them to take over. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I kind of want to tell the story of, of what happened and what we know. To be honest, during the research process, my personal opinions would flip flop the more I read and the more, I, you know, it, it what I thought I knew mm -hmm. wasn't exactly accurate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why people are so passionate about this case is because sure. they, they think they know what happened and then they're frustrated about what, it's, what actually happens and how it was handled. Yes. Um, there's a lot to unpack in the case. So bear with me. Yes. Um, <laughs> however, I do have to mention a disclaimer, the case and the theories that I do cover aren't necessarily what I believe. I'm not insinuating anybody is guilty. I'm just covering the crime chat facts. All videos and interviews that I do reference will be posted in the crime chat with Nat and Kat on the Patreon. So if and no other questions, let's get started yes. in our crime chat for today. Let's do it. We got to just jump right in. We do. We do. Okay. Part one, the Ramsey family. Um, yeah, I, I want to start with a little bit of background on the family. I think uh, the events leading up to the crime and the overall family dynamic are really important when trying to understand back. Yes. Backstory. His background is, yep. Mm -hmm. John Benet Ramsey was a divorced father of three. From he had three children from his first marriage. Quick side note: he he had a his oldest daughter was killed in a car accident. So John Benet wasn't his first oh. child that was killed. Yeah. Oh, I don't. 
I don't think I actually knew that. I don't. I didn't know that. that. I don't remember that being kind of a like a, a well-known fact of, during the news coverage, you know, and everything like that. That's interesting. Okay. Trisha Patsy Ann Paw was a former Miss West Virginia pageant queen. <laughs> um, and it's a tongue twister when you say that. And graduated from University of West Virginia with a degree in journalism. Mm-hmm. So she she was pretty smart. She was yeah. dazzling. She was smart. She was the whole enchilada. Okay. Yeah. And when uh, John met Patsy, he fell for her right away. She was actually 19 years younger than him. Oh, wow. At the time. Wow. That's a big age. That's a she, big age bracket. Like, she got a sugar daddy. She got a sugar daddy. Yeah. Well, I mean, John was no scrub. He was a Michigan State graduate. Mm-hmm. He served in the United States Navy for 11 years. Uh, thank you for your service, thank John. Thank you for your service. Before starting his own business, uh, which was called at the time Advanced Products Group. He had another business, a smaller one, which he merged later on into one company, which is called Access Graphics. It's a computer service company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He became the CEO and the president, and he was named Entrepreneur of the Year by the Boulder Chamber of Commerce in 1996 after his company grossed $1 billion. We talked about that time frame and computer technology advances and stuff with John McAfee, right? Yes. Good on him right. for picking up on that potential for business success. Yeah, that's right. John and Patsy got married in 1980. In 1987, they had a son named Burke. In 1990, they had a daughter named John Benet, and they all lived in Boulder, Colorado, and lived a perfect, well, what we thought a perfect American life. Seemingly perfect. Seemingly perfect. John and Patsy created this lavish lifestyle, as we know. Mm -hmm. John did very well in business and became a very wealthy man. Burke and John Benet were both well-dressed, well-behaved children, and Patsy was the wife and mother who put it all together, Mm -hmm. hosting lavish parties in their 6,800 square foot home. I'm sorry, 6,800 square foot? I wouldn't even, yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I wouldn't even know what to do with all that. Right. There's not enough shoes. I would want to clean I, all that. But I guess I wouldn't want to clean it, all that. No. Somebody else can clean it, right? <laughs> exactly. I only need like, I don't know, a thousand square feet. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of friends. They traveled. I mean, they had a very beautiful life together. Mm-hmm. Her friends and neighbors would say that Patsy dressed beautifully. Her hair was perfect. Her nails were perfect. Her makeup was on point. Yeah. Basically, um, she never walked out of the house without looking like she was ready to walk down a runway in a pageant. You got it, <laughs> flaunt it. You got it, flaunt it. She's a beautiful woman. She's a smart yeah. woman. And yeah. that was her thing. Mm-hmm. So remember, she is also a former beauty queen. Mm-hmm. So Patsy did put a lot of emphasis on physical appearance. And she always made sure that her home, her family looked immaculate. Yes. Most people did love them and they enjoyed spending time with them and going to their fancy parties at their home. And Patsy was one of those hosts that would go above and beyond to make her mm-hmm. guests feel special and included so so far I I like her you know like that's the thing side note a lot of people don't know this before 1996 Patsy was battling stage four ovarian cancer and was cleared by the doctor right before December 1996 so this holiday season in 96 was more than just a holiday it was a celebration of life for her yeah, I I know Mm -hmm. that she died from cancer Mm -hmm. but I guess I don't know that I realized that it was something she had faced stage four, you know, prior to. Okay. Very significant. And she was a survivor already. And Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that she was in remission. So yeah, me either. Yeah. Well, John Bonet was a beautiful little girl, as we know. Mm -hmm. Um, Many would say that Patsy capitalized on her natural beauty, her charm, and put her on the pageant circuit as a little mini me, a little version of her. 
Yeah. And I can see that definitely. Yeah. John Bonet won her first pageant when she was four years old. And by age six, uh, she won five beauty pageants and of course competed in many, many more. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I ever told you this. So I was in mm. Miss Preteen Florida growing up. I was really? in a state beauty pageant. Yeah. I did it one year. I did it How one old? year. I was eight. Okay. So seeing some of this, and especially when the story actually came down, it, it wasn't that long after very fresh in my head. Like when I mm-hmm. actually had participated, talent was option. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of like, if you did the talent, you probably got a little higher score because you kind of went out yeah. there a little bit. And I can only yeah. imagine being four or five or six doing these talents. I mean, I was eight and I was scared to death. I was like, nope, I'm not doing a talent. I just, I did formal gown and then another mm-hmm. gown. We did our little performances. And I mean, I think I, I don't remember. I want to say I got like 12th or 18th or something like that in the state. So right. I had like little participation tiara, my little, I actually still have my sash that I you wore. Do? I do. <laughs> do you have a picture of when you won? I will have to dig it up. Yeah. I, I oh, we got to put that on Patreon. Okay. Patreon okay. chatters. have a picture, <laughs> a sneak peek of Pat when she was eight in a pageant. She was a, and she was a beauty queen. Oh, well, <laughs> well, not like this, but I can say, cause I've seen the beauty pageant TV shows, mm-hmm. like with the, the reality show with like honey boo boo, right? Tod- and- toddlers and tiaras. Yes. And this, but it was so real like that. And my mom, thankfully, did not put me through like that stress or anything right. like that. I mean, my hair wasn't even done all up that fancy. I had the crimper mm-hmm. in my hair. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I would, I would say that this is a bit excessive for a four-year-old. I mean, yeah, would you agree? for sure. Yes, absolutely. So with that, they were constantly traveling around to pageants mm-hmm. and practicing and rehearsing, as you mm-hmm. can imagine. Yeah, uh, it takes a, a lot of money, a lot of practice to be in one of those things, especially if you're a four-year-old and you're trying to Oof. focus, which also, if you think about it, Patsy also had to be very focused as well, because you're taking your, your four-year-old out to these pageants and preparing her. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of time, effort, and money that a parent is putting in as well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when you're I, a Susie homemaker, it's kind of what you that's do. That's true. That's true. Well, a lot of people would say John Bonet when she wasn't on the circuit, she was at, at home. She was a tomboy. She loved <laughs> running around the yard, jumping in the leaves. And she yep. was just a typical kid. And that's so. probably why I didn't continue because I was like, nah, <laughs> <laughs> not for me. <laughs> so John, he really didn't agree with John Bonet being in pageants at, at such a young age. And he, but he was a really busy man and he didn't. He wasn't home a lot. So this family dynamic was pretty black and white. Uh, He was responsible for bringing home the money. Patsy was responsible for the home uh, or anything in the home, which included the kids. Right. And Patsy seemed to know exactly how she wanted her family to be perceived. Maybe John gave her what she wanted because, you know, that old saying, happy wife, happy life. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah. And then Patsy was, as we know, is a high society housewife, socialite, Mm full-time mom. Mm -hmm. So many would state that uh, Patsy was a great mother and she was always there for her children. Uh, Other parents would say that she, they trusted her with their kids and she enjoyed being a mom. Patsy created an image for the family. And I think John liked that. There was a lot to unpack there in the relationship. I I don't think her being who she is really uh, made John look bad. I think it made him look really put together and, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people and envied them. Yeah, he probably um, appreciated the fact that what people saw at the home and what mm-hmm. he actually came home to and what was seen kind of was equivalent to his status in the business world, 
Like my right. wife and kids got their stuff together, right? Right, exactly. However, the fact is that John Bonet was put on public display, and mm-hmm. at age four, at four years old, she was winning pageants. She was dressed in a provocative way for a young mm-hmm. girl. She had mm-hmm. her hair and makeup done in a way that an adult woman would. Like she would have a very large, well, back then when I was growing, like that aquanet look. Yes, goofy like hair. that helmet. Yeah, poofy, yeah. poofy hair. Patsy actually bleached her hair at age four to give her a more platinum look. Wow. I don't know that either. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Patsy made sure that she always wore a bright red lipstick, uh, whether she was on the pageant circuit or she was taking family photos. I know. It seems, I don't know. Yeah. It's excessive. Um, it looking is. back, it's excessive. Yeah. It's looking back. Yeah. John was also at the time attending a dance studio because she has to get ready for a pageant and, mm-hmm. you know, do her gotta talent. Like you said, got to yep. know how to dance. <laughs> 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 However, this dance studio that she belonged to had a public dance floor. So all of the rehearsals, all of the practices, all of the teaching and the trainings or the classes that they had were literally on a, in a room where the public could just walk in Mm -hmm. and look at the little girls dancing. And as you can imagine, this opened the doors for a lot of creepers. Yeah. Well, and, and on top of that, if you think about who is on the dance floor? I mean, John Benet at this point was a mini celebrity in her community. Mm-hmm. She was the little pageant girl who sang and danced on stage. And she also had this charming personality, which I'm thinking was part of her training as being a pageant queen where you're you're very agreeable and you kind mm-hmm. of can go along. And I, I mean, what do you think? I'm not that familiar with the pageant world. So mm-hmm. like, I only know that I've seen it on TV. I've, you know, I always watch the Miss America Oh yeah. Enamored by these women. Like they're so put together, but I couldn't never do something like that. I would never be able to. And I think at this, if you're looking at the, this timeframe, right. Mm -hmm. The nineties, late nineties, the Miss America pageant, Miss USA pageant. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was really prominent. Like that was one of the highest ratings on TV that you would watch. Mm -hmm. Like I would watch it. Right. Because you always wanted to pull by, you know, for your state. Mm-hmm. And, you know, see where they went and everything. But I think also, you know, it was just a lot and it, the answers are scripted. The yeah. everything is just be rehearsed and nothing just is natural. And I think right. that's what attracted us to it. But realizing behind the curtain, behind the scenes, there's a lot of shit that gets has to get put together. And it's not mm-hmm. always what you think. So I don't I think it died off the popularity of it while it was out there for a little bit kind of died off. And mm-hmm. I'm OK with that. Because it's not reality. It's not. No, it's not. And John Bonet was essentially a living little doll in a way, you know, like, and it's just, I don't know. And And she's four. For a kid, you know? No. Side note, years later, John would later state that it is not a good idea to put your children on public display. Like I said, I, I personally have had no personal experience with somebody who's done that other than you. Mm-hmm. And I just found that out a couple of minutes ago. Um, so <laughs> you're so, welcome. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's a cultural thing, and yeah. that like it's a passing of the torch from mother to daughter if it's in, within the family. Yeah, it's it probably opens up networking opportunities for a social aid and career opportunities. And there's a lot that I a lot there's a lot that people don't aren't aware of uh, the positives that it does. Uh, people are so focused on the negatives yeah. because of the story. Yeah. Um, you're always focused on that. So, right. 
Now, as makeup is concerned, I have to just, in my opinion, I have to admit that I think that this is a creative tool. And a lot of parents do allow their parent, uh, their kids to express themselves playing with makeup because it washes off. It's just makeup. Yeah, some um, do. And then there's others that just, that still believe in that very traditional or classy look. Like if you've got yeah. somebody that wants to do a bold look nowadays, I think it's a little bit more acceptable, but back then it was like, it had to be nice and neat and put together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I don't think what that is what Patsy was doing. I, I honestly don't believe that Patsy was bleaching her four-year-old hair um, or painting makeup on her face um, to express who John Benet was internally. I think she was just uh, glamming up her little doll-like creation. Yeah, her life like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I and with that said, I don't I, I don't believe, I think Patsy did love her daughter and I mm-hmm. don't believe that, you know, she could predict a horrible, horrible chain of events that have happened. Right. The public opinion on this, as you can imagine, is very strong and it's very, very split. Yes. So, yeah. We're just going to leave that there. We're going to go into part two, which is the morning of the crime. And I, your head's going to be spinning because you have a lot of background here. So mm-hmm. okay. here we go. <laughs> on December 26, 1996, Pat, Patsy woke up early and went downstairs to put some coffee on. The reason why Patsy got up so early that morning was because it was the day after Christmas and they were actually leaving to go on vacation later that morning. The Ramses were where, uh, a very wealthy family and they were flying out on one of their two private jets. So mm. private, they're PPs, they're private planes. <laughs> Gotta have PP. John was actually also, well, John was also a pilot. So, you know, he would fly them so together. Was PPP. Family. He was a PPP. Oh, PPP. Other people's PPP. <laughs> <laughs> so the master bedroom, I'm trying to remember this house is enormous. Okay. Right. So 6,800 square foot of uh, yeah, I thought perfection. So the master bedroom, if you look at a picture and I will post a picture on the Patreon of the back of the house where the bedroom is located. And it is mm-hmm. three stories of this huge mansion. And they had like two different balconies. It was crazy. The master bedroom was located on the third floor where John was sleeping at the time. And down the hallway, they had this big spiral staircase going down from the third floor to the first floor. I love spiral staircases. They're just I glamorous. Do. They're gorgeous. They are. I just want to cascade down one. Be like, yeah. wee, wee. <laughs> jump on the banister. Go, wee. <laughs> down. Patsy stated on her way down um, the that staircase, she found a two and a half page ransom letter. Mm-hmm. The pages were laid out side by side next to each other, which made it easy for Patsy to do like a quick a quick scan of what was written. Um, she noticed that the address to a Mr. Ramsey. She um, upon closer inspection, she also noticed that it stated things like they had taken her daughter. The letter gave very specific instructions on what to do next, such as they can't call the police. They have to wait for the kidnappers to call them that morning Mm -hmm. in order to set up a ransom exchange. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't follow any of these instructions that John Benet would be executed. Mm. Yeah. So the ransom note that was left, I'm going to read to you in its entirety. Okay. All right. So now before I just disclaimer, um, it is very upsetting to read. So just bear with me. Okay. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We're a group of individuals that represent a foreign faction. We respect your businesses, but not the country it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want her to see 1997, you will follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. 100,000 will be in $100 bills 
and the remaining $18,020 in bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate attache to the bank. It, when you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier delivery pickup of your daughter. Any deviation from my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. Mm. Two gentlemen watching your over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not provoke them. Speaking to anybody about your situation, such, such as the police, the FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authority, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electric devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned, we are familiar with law enforcement, countermeasures, and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your own daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory. SBTC. I just have chills reading it. Yeah. I, I, when I, when I, I read through that a couple of times and every time you kind of think like what you're reading, mm -hmm. it's pretty, it's crazy. There's so, a lot, there's a lot in that, in the delivery, in the verbiage choice. There's, mm -hmm. there's a lot in that. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. So does it sound theatrical or dramatic or familiar? Oh, yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah, well, apparently the kidnapper enjoyed movies because if you ever watched the movie called Dirty Harry or Speed, mm -hmm. yeah, the similarities are are disturbing. Oh, um, that's true. Yes, very much so. According to Patsy Ramsey, she then runs upstairs to John Benet's room only to find her bed empty. Mm -hmm. She goes and wakes up John, freaking out, explaining what happened. That has to be terrifying. Yeah, it has to be just utterly terrifying to have that. Yeah. So to John read and Patsy, that and then to say, oh my gosh, what if this is a hoax and go up and then she's not there and you're going, oh God, maybe it's true. Yeah. yeah. So John and Patsy go downstairs. They call the police, which the letter clearly stated not to do. And mm -hmm. I want your opinion because to be honest, I honestly don't know what I would do as a parent. So as somebody with your background, what mm -hmm. would you suggest doing? I, if I you, would call the police hundred percent. Even if you were said, if they, even if they said do not after that yes, letter. Because okay. there's ways that they can be alerted without mm -hmm. no, without the ransomers, I guess, if that's the word, knowing mm -hmm. that you've actually alerted the police, unless they're tapping your phone. I mean, there's ways that they could kind of try and figure out whether or not you contact the police. Right. And as a kidnapper or ransomer, I would assume that they would and then you have to think about that as part of your plan like if you're thinking like a criminal I'm going to anticipate that these people are going to contact the police even though I told them not to what is right. my what is my reaction is the criminal going to be am I going to slice up a finger am I going to do something that shows you I'm serious do not cooperate with police but right. I will say from the law enforcement side, there are methods and ways you're only going to find out where she is and the safety of it with law enforcement help. So I would yeah. 
absolutely suggest people contact law enforcement. Yeah. Okay. Well, the ransom note was found to be from the writing pad from inside the house. Yeah. So yeah, just, you know, I just want to like kind of give you an idea about this. Francie. Yeah. So th- it was from Patsy's writing pad and what was found <sighs> yes. by, so this writing pad was found at the like family telephone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like in mm-hmm. the kitchen area mm-hmm. by the, by the study mm-hmm. and by that area, they, she had um, a pen that she always used. Mm-hmm. That pen was still there, put in its place in its pen holder and around um, where that that like little desk area in the in the bin was also left practice notes of the ransom note Mm -hmm. so somebody ripped off a page and crumpled it up and threw it away and and i've ran cases with this before as well and there's plenty of cases that are out there as far as when you're transcribing on the same notepad the amount of pressure that you use when it and especially in this Mm -hmm. and writing a a note that you're going to be stressed. So you have a tendency to write a little heavier. So that's going, that impression is going to go through various layers of paper, no matter how many layers of paper you take off. Right. Especially if you didn't mm-hmm. practice ones before mm-hmm. actually doing the correct one, regardless of who wrote it, if they've mm-hmm. identified it, they'll be able to identify it. Like it fits from that same notepad. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, keep in mind, this is a two and a half page letter. This is a really long ransom. And every, the professionals say that most ransoms are a paragraph or sentence kind of getting to the Mm -hmm. point. This was a very, very, yeah, very long. Two and a half pages. Yeah. I would say Mm -hmm. a page probably at its most are typical of actual ransom letters. Yeah. So the ransom right there is just Mm -hmm. a, you know, it's, it's, it's a piece of evidence that is going to come into question later. And And somebody didn't do their homework if they're trying to throw a loop in for police. Bingo. The kidnappers also asked for 118,000, which, you know, was another uh, little caveat to Mm the story because that was John's bonus. And um, the only people that apparently knew about this was the Ram was the Ramses, the family. Right. And the, um, and the company, because they were the ones yeah. that issued it out the bonus. Yeah. Yes. And if you think about it, he's a multimillionaire. They could have asked for a million dollars. I mean, they could have and they could have gotten it. So I don't know. It's just it's crazy. So. In uh, uh, 2016, CBS aired a docuseries called The Case of John Benny Ramsey, where they gathered a group of uh, specialists, police officers, pathologists, uh, to figure out how long it would take to write this letter in its entirety. Mm-hmm. And they said that it took about 20 minutes to write the letter. And that was just copying the letter that wasn't really sitting down and thinking about what to write. So right. uh, yeah, that's just to give you an idea of how long that type of ransom letter well, that one was. And 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 typically, if you're in a situation, I would say for ransom notes, maybe a lot of times they're done ahead of time because they already have it as part of their Mm pre-plan. Who's going to take the time to write that much? I don't know. Right. Uh, Well, they also theorized that the letter was trying to lead the reader to believe that English was not the first language of the author. Uh, Using words like attache, that's not Mm -hmm. a normal or common word that we use Mm -hmm. here in America. Although we know what it is, yeah. it's not something we use. Not no, um, yeah. And the first paragraph, there was a lot of grammar mistakes and errors and spelling errors. And they feel that after the first paragraph, the author then falls into their natural way that's of writing, typical. which is yep. perfect and grammar. Yeah. And that's typical for 
any type of, so in doing handwriting analysis or handwriting comparisons, when you're trying mm-hmm. to compare an unknown to a known, you have them write a lot of the same lines multiple, multiple, multiple times, because they will then, the first one, you know, it's, it's very obvious the first ones that are happening are very intentional or kind of to throw off, but people mm-hmm. get into normal rhythm. So you will see towards the end, the more natural, and that's where a lot of the comparisons really hit. Yeah. Ah, well, uh, well, comparing it to say the case study that they did all these, you know, they had a forensic profiler come in to sample, like to test hundreds of samples of Patsy's handwriting to mm-hmm. this letter. Mm-hmm. And they found that it was highly probable that she wrote the letter. No they doubt. did um, eliminate or rule out uh Burke and John at the same mm-hmm. time, pretty uh, pretty quickly. They could never rule her out. Now, with that said, there's just as many other professionals out there that say the opposite. Mm-hmm. So it, when it comes to the handwriting, it really, it's, it's a split because people feel that she did it. People feel that she didn't do it. It is what it is. So yeah. moving right along, which will bring us <laughs> to part four. Um, mm-hmm. Now we're going to get into the 911 call. At 5.52 a.m. is when Patsy called 911. Here is the initial recording. It did. It's a lot to hear. And she sounds frantic. She sounds, she sounds naturally shaken and who wouldn't be Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now, according to Patsy and John that morning, when they spoke to uh, the officer that first arrived at the scene, uh, Burke was fast asleep. And I'm saying this to you now, because I want you to put a pin in it. I want Mm -hmm. you to put that in the long-term parking chatters because we're going to hit this again. Okay. So But there's something that really feels odd to me that I need to get out of the way is here, she's reporting that there's a kidnapping of her youngest child. Mm -hmm. Where is the other kid? Supposedly asleep in the bedroom. Exactly. So, but they know if they didn't check. Right. So if you had a, if you had a possible kidnapping of your kid, what would you do with the other kid? Uh, I would get him. Yeah. Yeah. Either mommy or daddy would be with that child. Yes. Knowing exactly where they're located. Cause you don't yes. know if the intruder is still in the house. I, I, that, that just bothers me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 911 call that we just heard is going to come into question again. And I would just want you to put a pin in that as well. Okay. Now, immediately after getting off the phone with 911, Patsy calls a couple of her friends to come over and comfort her. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the Ramses had been to their house the night before. Okay, and that throws me off actually a little bit too. Mm-hmm. I would want to just stay with my family that's there. Mm-hmm. My husband, my other kid, like I would want to just be there with my family that's actually there with me. I wouldn't yeah. think about, you know, a girlfriend coming over to comfort me. No, I, I, that's not unless I needed that attention. Yeah, this is, I don't know if you can feel my frustration, but this is where I get frustrated with the story because mm-hmm. we're going through the story. We have nine parts and we're, mm-hmm. we're going to tell the story in the way it happens. But yet still I'm sitting here and there's so many theories hitting me right now yeah. of what, the police said what Patsy says, and it just, it just gets very muddy, but I'm going to continue with exactly how it just unfolded. Okay. Um, around 6 AM, the first police officer arrives. So the 911 call happened. Patsy immediately called her friends to comfort her. At this point, the police officer walks in. Patsy says, my, uh, my son is sleeping. He's been sleeping this whole time. And, and she continues to say that all day. The officer does a quick check of the house when they first get there. Walking around the house, uh, she does come across Burke's room and, par- mm-hmm. and shines a flashlight in on the room, which mm-hmm. to me is, is a weird little fact because when you turn the lights on. Not necessarily at first, no? especially if you're doing a cursory search, you don't necessarily want to turn the lights on okay. unless you know that it's safe. So flashlights are typically used first for that initial search. Once they've deemed that the room's been cleared, you could probably mm-hmm. go back and turn the light on. But also you have to think if there might be fingerprints or other type of evidence that would be on a light switch. Girl, this is why <laughs> I love you. Thank you. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Okay, so <laughs> she she's she shined a flashlight into the room. Yep. She found him awake and sitting on the foot of the bed. However, she did not find Jean Benet. Now, side note to this initial officer's search, she did pass the door of the room where John Benet would later be found, and she mm-hmm. never opened it. Mm-hmm. So John Benet could have been found at 6 a.m. if she was, you know, so that's just... in her search. Yeah. Uh, so well, I mean, so initially I will also say if they don't know where the perpetrator is it's a suspected kidnapper. They don't know mm-hmm. if the kidnapper's still in the house. That's the first thing that they're going to look for, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to look for any additional threat that might be actually inside the house still. So I yeah. get that. But you also go into every single place that a person would be, which would include the basement. Yeah, yeah. So why, why she passed that room, unless she thought it was like a closet or something. Even still, people hide in closets. Yeah. I don't know. Uh-huh. I would open every single nook and cranny. So the rest of the police showed up eight minutes later. Mm -hmm. They obviously think at this point it's a kidnapping. They notify the FBI immediately believing, well, I think they were believing that John Benet was being transported maybe out of the country by this foreign faction, because remember how the ransom note was written initially. However, during this entire time, nobody is thinking that this is a crime scene. They're thinking it's a kidnapping. Mm -hmm. So nothing was really secured, which is a little frustrating to me because my my impression is even if it's a kidnapping when a cop gets there don't they still need dna Mm -hmm. don't they still need to kind of mark this place off as not a crime scene but a potential evidence it is a crime scene because it would be where the girl was taken from right the ramses put her to bed Mm -hmm. and they know that they put her to bed at a certain time yeah she's no longer in that bed it is a crime scene because it's where an actual kidnapping took place so any type of preservation of evidence at this point they Mm -hmm. should take into account like if they say okay we didn't find the girl on our cursory search well we should have but we Mm -hmm. didn't we believe this is a ransom note Mm -hmm. it says that the girl is kidnapped 
Mm. I would focus on her room because that's the last place that the parents saw her. So any kind of trace, whether it's through a window, through the door, like however this person got in, I would actually, I would treat it as a crime scene. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. So at this point, friends are over. Mm-hmm. Everybody's walking around. Yeah. Uh, they lost everything everything they actually lost track of john he left the house like they didn't they, he said he was in a study but nobody can prove it hmm. which is strange it's That's very interesting. odd like where did yeah. everybody go your daughter's flipping missing i know i know so that afternoon the police informed the ramses that they are going to do a complete search that was at 1 p.m Ugh. they've been there since six okay so now they're informing them that they're going to do a, a more thorough search mm-hmm. they asked john to walk through the house with them. Mm -hmm. John then asked his friends who came over earlier to comfort Patsy uh, to join him, which I found very odd too, because I just feel that shouldn't have police said, no, it's just going to be you and I and and not your friend. And the reason why that is, is because now, however many hours later, they're considering it a crime scene, right? Mm -hmm. So unless I needed help in explaining what something was, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the owner Oh, you would go by yourself. You, yeah. you would just myself okay. and a partner, probably. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, you'd be I think... able to have not just one cop, but a, a counterpart also testifying to what you found on the initial on the right. initial walkthrough. Most of the time, I mean, it wasn't so prevalent then, but nowadays police officers also have cams. They have the body cams, right? Mm-hmm. That help with showing mm-hmm. what they yes. do. At this point, body cams weren't really a thing. So having a second officer who could testify to what was there when they initially found it would be prevalent and it wouldn't be contaminated with the owner's take on things or right. let alone his friend, the stranger right. who's also contaminating the crime scene. Exactly. Exactly. So witnesses say that, and when I say witnesses, I mean his friends say that John went straight to the basement. Like he was asked to do a search and he got up and walked straight to the basement. Um, yeah, which I, yeah, is a little weird. And moments being down there, he went straight to that door that the officer, the initial officer did not open. He opened mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. yells out, I found her before he turns on the lights. Now, did John have a flashlight? No, no mm-hmm. flashlight. Because and he knew this it was, was already down there. This was a wine cellar. There was no source of light. There was yeah. no natural light. The only source of light was behind them in the hallway in a labyrinth of a basement because remember mm-hmm. this is a huge house and it mm-hmm. wasn't I guess this is before open concept homes <laughs> and there were a lot of rooms you know yeah so yeah he it just seemed very odd and that was a friend of his saying that seems a little odd that John did so that. the friend and that was accompanying him also said that was weird he, he was the witness that said Ooh, it. Yeah. he was the one that said oh he, he turned the light on but after he yelled out I don't um, care how prominent you are if mm-hmm. you if you suspect somebody's committing a crime regardless of your relationship. I mean, I would help you hide a body, but I'm just saying. I know, unless you're mad. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just right. No, I completely understand. Just so kidding, now, just kidding. <laughs> no, I would so, so <laughs> At this point, John grabbed his daughter off the floor of the wine cellar. He ripped the duct tape off her face. He carried her upstairs and then he placed little John Bonet in front of the Christmas tree on the floor as horrified police, friends, and family looked on. This is frustrating. Yeah, my question is, so if if the police were actually with him, when they're like, hey, John, please come with me when I do the search, and he goes in a different direction, one, I would make sure that he stays with you. And two, Mm -hmm. if you were with him, you wouldn't touch it because she is a crime scene in herself. So now with John picking her up and placing her in front of the Christmas mm-hmm. tree, like a present. Uh, yeah, it was odd. I mean, everybody. So like there, 
just this alone, Pat, is so frustrating because there are so many theories that, like I said, muddy the waters. And I mm-hmm. and I do want to mention the theories. Yes. So one of the theories is that John, if John had something to hide, this was his perfect opportunity where he put his DNA over everything. But on the side note, I can't say I wouldn't do the same thing. I think most parents, if they see their child in, in trouble, they would run to their aid. They would rip the tape off. They would shake them. They would try to- yes comfort them or coddle them. You're yes. not going to look at your child in that state and just say, oh, crime scene. You're going to be like, well, no. And that's why I'm saying help. the police officer yeah. should have been there with him. Even if he ran up to her to check and see if she was alive, mm-hmm. by the time he carried her up to the stairs and put her in front of the Christmas tree, why was there no cop there? They should have stopped them. They should have did something. Them. Yes. They should have done something. So at this point, unfortunately, you know, as we know, the scene is not preserved in any way, mm-hmm. even for a kidnapping mm-hmm. investigation. Mm-hmm. And John placed John Benet in actually the area where it was the most traffic at that point, where people were coming mm-hmm. and going. Intentional. Um, well, yeah, like that's that's a huge theory here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I think it's safe to say that the entire day, the entire mystery was not handled properly by police sure so at this point we're going to go into into part five which is the crime scene which is probably going to piss you off most of all all right here we go here we go john benet was found wrapped in a blanket duct tape over her mouth her hands were tied and placed over her head a garrote was tied around her neck the garrote was made of a white nylon cord with and it was tied off with a, a broken piece of one of Patsy's paintbrushes. So this tool like, kind of like a tourniquet. Twisted, like a tourniquet. Like you a twist tourniquet. It, okay. Yeah. And you just get tighter and tighter. There was an un- unidentified high-tech boot print found next to John Benet's body. Mm-hmm. Um and that didn't belong to anybody, either police or family in the house. And there were drops of blood that were found on her underwear. Do um, you think when John left the home, he got rid of his high-tech boots? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't think John would own high-tech boots. I can't see him being that type of guy that would put some of those boots on to do some yeah. work. Or well, I mean, they, they like can a make him guy of... to me. Yeah. <laughs> more of a well, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Well, at, at this, uh, there was okay. So in the basement, there was a broken window, um, okay. which they believed at that point that was the most likely point of entry from the intruder. Additionally, there was a blue suitcase also located near that window that nobody could identify. The Ramsey says it wasn't theirs, and they have no idea how it got there. So now we have an open window. We have a blue suitcase. We do, do have we, a crime scene. Do we know what was in the suitcase? There was nothing. It was just a suitcase. Weird. It was just a weird blue suitcase that was sitting there. Okay. Um, and now a lot of people said that, you know what, you're too focused on the basement. The house, the entire house was heavily carpeted. Yeah. So it's very believable that the intruder didn't come through that window, but they actually walked downstairs. They grabbed John Benet from the bedroom and walked downstairs. However, just side note, the intruder wouldn't really need to break in at that point because that night there were multiple windows and doors that were left unlocked and open. So is it possible that the broken window was a ploy? Yeah, yeah, it's very possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. That would lead us to part six was the autopsy. Okay. okay. So the autopsy of John Benet Ramsey, six-year-old female, blonde hair, green eyes, dried mucus found on her face, most likely from her nose and her mouth. Also several, several injuries, including abrasions on the side of her face between her ear and her jaw, pectoral hemorrhages in her eyes. An eight and a half inch skull fracture ran the length of the right side of her head, bruises and abrasions on her shoulders, legs, feet, 
vaginal areas and a deep ligature mark, which encircled the neck due to the white cord from the garrote. So the garrote went from her neck to her hands. No, her hands were tied. So her hands oh, were tied, but but then there was a, a separate knot around her neck. It was a separate cord, yeah. Okay. So her hands were tied, and not not necessarily her hands weren't tied behind her back. They were, it was almost like her hands were tied in front of her, and mm-hmm. they, it just fell that way. The autopsy also revealed that John Benet's bladder was empty. She had undigested pineapple in her stomach, and some unknown DNA that was found on her underwear from blood droplets, and also under her fingernails. And I know there's a lot of theories about that pineapple, and too many to get into. So mm-hmm. we're just going to continue moving on, but there mm-hmm. are, they're, they're still there. Oh. Um, so now side note is one theory that constantly was brought up later on in the case when it came to the suspects is there are two suspicious marks on her body. I mean, everything on her body is suspicious and she's mm-hmm. got, the, of course, I mean, she obviously girls. went through something. Yeah. So but there was two marks that were just perfectly aligned and they feel that this was it was heavily deba- debated that it was from a stun gun or it could have been from a the track of a toy train piece, which was located in the other room. So in the other room from the wine cellar, Burke had this huge room set up for his like Lionel train station mm-hmm. and these really old, like these expensive pieces of track, which were made of metal. They felt that it fit it- aligned with that. It, that's what I'm wondering is if they actually took the train set, you know, kind of where it goes in, where it links mm-hmm. from one to the other, if they actually lined that up and thought that it might have matched. And that's if exactly it was, what they did. If it was an electronic train set, it mm-hmm. could have been plugged in and it could have done something to her. Yeah. Yeah. If it, if he actually, if it aligned right and it could have shocked her. Yes. And, and the pieces, and that was another huge theory because it did line up perfectly Mm. with the, the connecting joints of a train state, like the train track. And they have those little connecting joints that they yeah. each add. Yeah. And it was those two little points that they feel that hmm. created those two. That was on her, where was that on mm-hmm. her neck? That was on her back. On her back. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then now they also speculated that the head injury was caused by a bat that was located in the home. Mm-hmm. And also it could be possibly from a heavy duty flashlight, you know, like one of those really big mm-hmm. mag light flashlights. Yeah. I, um, I have one of those that I've used as a, as a protective weapon before. We got yeah, four D-sized batteries. I mean, that sucker's heavy. Oh, absolutely. You swing with that thing. You're going to leave a mark. But it was um, all, so it was all, her head injury was on the right side of her head though, right? Yes. Which in yeah. facing somebody, if it's going to be on the right side, the person would have to be left-handed. Right. Yeah. Unless mm-hmm. she was facing away. Mm-hmm. So we'd have to, depending on the blood force trauma, like analysis of it in the direction of where mm-hmm. it might've been, you could get either if the person was above or below on the right side, on the left side, like you could be right. able to get a direction of where the impact actually came from. So I wonder if they actually analyze left-handed perpetrators. See, this is where it's hard to stick to the facts and not let the theories take over because honestly, think about it. It's an ongoing investigation. If there is something like that, that they are investigating, we're not mm-hmm. going to know. Yeah. We don't have yeah. any right to know, we, but we, we're going to speculate to try yeah. to figure it out. And we're going to have our brightest minds try to do it. But the fact hey, Boulder is, police go I for know. the left-handed suspects. <laughs> so the Ramseys did own one of these heavy duty flashlights and, mm-hmm. but they couldn't locate it that night. And 
it still has never been recovered. So that they don't know. So John got rid of that with his high-tech boots. Got it. It's a theory. It's a theory. <laughs> um, basically the autopsy stated that she died from asphyxiation due to strangulation. Mm-hmm. According to the medical examiner, she had been sexually abused that night and also stated that it looked like there had been possibly long-term sexual abuse. Mm. So yeah, before that came in that day on the 26th, by the end of the day, the Ramseys lawyered up. I was. So yeah, lawyered up immediately. Uh, they spoke to police briefly that day and did like that initial interview with, uh, obviously you're dealing with grieving parents. I can only imagine mm-hmm. what police are dealing with and how they're going to navigate that. Mm-hmm. So they kind of gave that initial interview and then they just, they just shut up. They just didn't, at that point, they just didn't speak to police. And at this point, as we know, the crime scene is not a crime scene. It's completely compromised. It's just, they did question Burke lightly the same day. Even with that, they they said in the story, it said that they did have a psychologist speak to him and then a social worker speak to him. But what are you going to get out of a nine-year-old the day of the crime? Um, so if they have psychologists, maybe social worker, maybe I'm a certified child forensic interviewer. And I've interviewed, you know, victims of sexual assault before mm-hmm. children. And there's a very specific method on how you go about talking to a child. It's not mm-hmm. the same way that you would talk to John or Patsy or a witness. It is a right. very specific way if you anticipate anticipate the person being a victim or a Mm -hmm. suspect there's a very specific way on doing it and I don't know that that was done if they thought that Burke might have been a suspect at this time especially if it was a long-term sexual abuse yeah he's nine it's a little young but not completely inconceivable at this time that he would be exploring his sexuality but yeah there's there would be a very specific way that I would want to talk to him and of course, yeah. that would also come with parental consent. Uh-huh. And they lawyered up within 24 yeah. hours. Let's face it. First of all, the police didn't handle the crime scene that well. Mm-hmm. First of all, and I think John was no fool and it, guilty or not guilty. He was not putting himself up to be interrogated or be mm-hmm. maybe being separated in a, a, you know, getting in with the investigation or being questioned, he, he just eliminated that fact completely, which is right. interesting. Yep. So with that, we're going to move into our next part, which is part seven, <laughs> which is the case. You're going to get even more pissed off. You ready? <laughs> I know. I know. Just keep drinking, girl. Okay. So um, the DA's office told the investigators at the time to basically go easy on them and treat them as victims. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'm not saying they weren't. I'm just saying at the time they didn't know that. So, well, okay. Uh, Just evaluating this little mm-hmm. bit of information, the DA and judges are often elected officials. Yes. I don't know if that's the case for Boulder, but as a prominent individual in this societal realm, they could mm-hmm. have had a lot of influence and the DA could have been like, it's cool. It's take it oh, easy. easy. John's a good guy. Yeah. You got a yeah. golf game on Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Like the, it, it definitely was. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this was a homicide now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in the full jurisdiction of the Boulder police department. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, the FBI pulled out and the FBI did offer the Boulder, mm-hmm. Boulder police department, mm-hmm. their resources and their manpower, and they turned it down. So this mm-hmm. is the part that's extraordinary. It's just so frustrating because Kat, at this point, John Benet was the only reported murder in Boulder for 1996. The Boulder police do not, still as of today, do not have a homicide department. Mm-hmm. They they needed 
the FBI. If anybody needed the FBI at that point, it was that department. And they're like, no, we got it. Yeah, they want you out. They don't want you digging up any anything. Uh, oh, that's just so mm. frustrating. Yes. And they've and, got, I mean, the FBI has so many resources. Like, they have so many ways. Yeah. I mean, look at forensic files. It's all based on FBI forensic analysis. Yes, I mean, their experience but, is just priceless. And not only that, but the Boulder Police Department handled this case so poorly by not securing the crime scene. But the idea that the Ramseys were guilty happened so quickly mm-hmm. that it actually did just the theory permeated within the department. So they all, the, the, the police at that point were kind of tainted to think that they were guilty before yeah. there was any proof or before anything. So in a way, right. maybe John wasn't wrong to lawyer up. Maybe he, he felt I mean, I a stupid man. Yeah, I would have lawyered oh. up at any point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, John and Patsy spoke to the police, as you know, that day, but then decided to give a live interview with CNN as it's very, it's very famous. It was in the 1997. Live with Larry it. King. Yes. I remember um, that. This shocked investigators because nobody knew they were doing this. Nobody knew it. Mm-hmm. They, they stated they can't talk to police because they were too emotional at the time and they didn't trust the Boulder Police Department. The Ramseys basically put their plea to find who did this to their daughter front and center mm-hmm. on national TV. And remember at this time, this case was on a 24 hour news cycle, yep, yep. Which, which was very new to the media because yep. right before that we had OJ. Yep. So we Welcome were 24 hour news cycle that you were, you want it, you got it. Yeah. Which um, I will also have, say being public relations previously, the news is a mm-hmm. business mm-hmm. and they go after anything that sells such as yeah, yeah. murders and sexuality and anything like that, that's sensational. That's what sells their business based on yeah. advertising. So. Sex sells. It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So now they they did allow themselves to be officially questioned in 1997, five months after John Benet's murder. Mm -hmm. However, before the interview, the second interview, they they had conditions. They asked police that they had the transcript of their initial interview from that day, which really pissed off police who were working the case, investigators. And it pissed off the media. And they were like, well, why would you need to see a transcript for your initial So you don't change your story because you don't remember what you said. So you don't change your story. Yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, to be honest, that's something that you wouldn't hand over during an open investigation, but potentially if they were being charged during like once the case had closed and it was going to court and there was Mm -hmm. enough beyond a reasonable doubt for like a grand jury and and everything like Mm -hmm. that to actually go to court, that's what would be put in discovery. So any evidence that the prosecution or the state has part of our judicial system like needs to be presented to the defense so they know evidence is against them. That's not something that I would just openly hand over in an open investigation. Yeah, this is before it went to court. This is before everything. This is still during that investigation. So the John and Patsy did withdraw completely at that point. In 1998, they just stopped uh, being available for questioning at all. The public, as we remember, gave a lot of scrutiny to the Ramseys and police, and there was a lot of added pressure to the prosecutor that year. In the Um, court of public opinion. In the court of public opinion. Oh, yeah. And there was a grand jury called to decide if John and Patsy Ramsey were, Mm -hmm. in fact, responsible for their daughter's death. Mm-hmm. He, the DA presented a case to the grand jury of eight women, four men. They focused on two key pieces of evidence. One, the Ramsey note. Two, the DNA found on her body. Did you they say pers- the Ramsey note? Did you mean Did the I say Ram- that? Yeah. Did I, oh, I'm sorry. The <laughs> that was a Freudian note. slip. <laughs> the ransom note. The One, Ramsey ransom note. note. Oh my God. So um, 
they heard testimony from dozens of witnesses um, and actually took a trip to the Ramsey's house to do a walkthrough of the crime scene in 1999. I've heard of that before. It helps give the jury perspective on an actual scene versus looking in pictures. Yeah. The grand jury voted to indict the Ramsey's on two counts of child abuse resulting in the death of a minor. However, the prosecutor at the time refused to go along with what the grand jury came up with and publicly stated that they would not be pursuing charges on the Ramseys and claiming that there was not enough evidence to go forward. Now, so I why don't bring ag- it to a grand jury in the first place. I think the pressure, I think the public pressure and the scrutiny that he had to do something. You but mean because he's an elected official? Yes. And I think, <laughs> af- honestly, I think after the OJ Simpson case, uh-huh. It's proved that no matter how much evidence you have, they can, people can get away with murder. And when you think about a DA trying to go after a very wealthy, predominant person again, he needed to say, okay, well, he's going to use $2 million in resources from the state mm-hmm. to do so. Mm-hmm. And then he's got to have a case where the jury is convinced. Mm-hmm. You know what? That I think the OJ case scared a lot of people legally, like professionally. And they're um, like, oh, snap, there's oh, snap. so much here. Mm, yeah, I kind of exactly. want to be elected next year. So let me not do this. Exactly. So, horrible. Yeah. So let's get let's, politics. I know. I know. Um, Let's roll back to the 911 call right now, because we are speaking about the grand jury. When they heard when they heard the testimony and they heard from dozens of witnesses, but they did not hear one crucial piece of evidence. So earlier we played for you the 911 call. It was the initial call that Patsy made to the police officer. However, there is more. So mm-hmm. They also, the dispatcher reported an additional eight seconds to the phone call. And that was where Patsy thought she hung up the phone. Right. But she did You kind of heard that. You kind of heard that in the end. That's crazy. Yeah. And and, and it is kind of, it's muddy and it's hard to hear. So when you listen to the recording, you hear three distinct, well, she said, the 911 dispatcher said, I heard three different voices. Mm -hmm. And also that she heard Patsy's tone changed drastically so yeah it's it was it was it was big so in 1997 it was examined by a company called aerospace corp Mm -hmm. and they basically enhanced the digital version that we hear today like on Mm -hmm. youtube they even though they didn't release their findings which is weird i don't know why you would go ahead and do this about this really huge murder case they, yeah. i mean they could have got a gag order i don't know i don't i don't know I mean, but i don't know the national choir did release of the leak and that's how we have it today we have it yeah. because of the national choir leaked it. yeah in the re in when you listen to the footage you'll you'll hear patsy like you hear the 911 dispatcher say when she starts saying patsy Patsy at the end is when mm-hmm. that eight seconds starts. That, that's so, when Patsy thought, and she that's hung what, up. thought she hung up. Right. Okay. Yeah. So in it, you hear the first voice is a man and it's assumed to be John. Uh, the second voice is a woman assumed to be Patsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third voice is that of a male child assumed to be Bert. Mm-hmm. Now uh, in the enhancement, the tape uh, reveals that in the background, you hear a child's voice saying, what did you find? And then you can hear a man voice stating, we're not talking to you. And then you can clearly hear Patsy saying, oh, my Jesus. Oh, I my heard Jesus. that. Yeah. Oh, the, oh, my Jesus. I heard her say that. Yeah. Yeah. And remember what we put in the long-term parking about where Burke was, where they said Burke was. Remember where? where he was, was asleep. Both, he was yeah, asleep. Yeah. He was asleep so. in his room. It has nothing to do with this, where they probably were like, go to your room. Right. Exactly. So this dispatcher at the time was hit with a gag order. 
like immediately once this was brought to investigators. Investigators stated that they don't want her to discuss anything about this before it goes to court. And when the grand jury convened in 1998, she was never called to testify. So this evidence was never brought to light until 2016, where she gave an interview in NBC. I think gag orders only go to actual trials. I don't think gag orders... I think they're still in effect when it comes to like grand jury and bringing enough reasonable doubt for it to go to trial. I don't think grand, I don't, I don't think the Gattuck order expires until actual trial, but if it, ah. if it never went to trial, I mean, that would explain why she was still under a gag order. Yeah. Oh yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're going to move on to our next part, which is part eight. And that is the suspects. Bum, bum, um, bum, bum, bum. So um, here are the top suspects at the time that police were looking into. Side note, I love that word, side note. It's my favorite, side note. Um, side note. Side note, the Ramseys had over 40 suspected um, sex offenders in their community at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and they, while they had to register, there. I don't think it, it at that time was readily available as far as registered sex offenders. Like you can now, you can do a search. Who are the mm-hmm. registered sex offenders that live in my zip code? you know, kind of thing. You can search for that now. I don't, I don't know that that was necessarily readily available without going to the police department to actually ask the question and request a list of sex offenders that are in their area. Yeah. It's creepy. It's very creepy when you think about the community that we thought we perceived them from to to be living in, but Perception is not I mean, if reality. we live in such a neighborhood, why would there be mm-hmm. crime? Right. So the first suspect that they came across was uh, Michael Helgoth. Mm-hmm. He committed suicide two months after the murder. When they found him, a stun, a stun gun was found near his body and as well as high tech boots. The theory suggests that John Benet's killer used the stun gun. Remember that theory mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's a theory. It's not mm-hmm. fact. It's not proven. It's a theory. Um, But he did have a stun gun on him. And for some reason, that just kept on getting brought up again about the stun gun. The unidentified shoe print of that high-tech boot, that was actual evidence. And he did own a pair of high-tech boots. But he was later cleared by DNA. So, Which I'm sure is part of the investigation, the actual size, the boot print analysis. They can cast the boot print Mm -hmm. and compare it to like an unknown to a known and see if it's the same size. There's there's impressions that people have in their specific shoes because of just wear and tear rocks, mm-hmm. whenever they walk on, there's certain like indentations on the sole yeah. of a shoe that mm-hmm. would be put into an actual print that would actually cause beyond a reasonable doubt of having like a match to somebody. Yeah. So I'm sure that boot print analysis was probably done, but yeah. regardless, only the, only the DNA, I guess was released. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I guess once his DNA did not match, they just eliminated. I mean, he was also dead. I mean, he was well, yeah. suicide. Yeah. Um, the next person is Gary Oliva, and this is a known sex offender. He was said to be in Boulder at the time of the murder. Mm-hmm. After being arrested on drug charges in 2000, he was found with a John Benet cut out, like a cardboard life-size cut out and a stun gun. Freaking crazy. Okay. Stun gun keeps on coming up. He was a potential suspect. He confessed that to a friend that he stated that he, he hurt a little girl and the friend reported him. Well, it doesn't um, mean it was Jean Benet. It could have been any little girl. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if he was um, already a sex offender, 
it could have been that little girl that he was convicted of uh, her yes. previously, right? Absolutely. Um, when he was arrested in 2016, police discovered that he had 335 photos of John Bonet, including the six-year-old autopsies mm-hmm. pictures. His yeah, his DNA did not match, so he was eliminated. Right. Uh, the next one is going to send shivers down your spine, and it's probably the most well-known suspect of John Bonet, and that is John Carr. He is a former substitute teacher. John Carr was arrested for child pornography in California in 01. Carr actually confessed to the murder in 06 while living in Thailand and on the run from American authorities because he was caught with child pornography. Yeah, I remember. I remember this guy. Yeah. Yeah, he was the most popular one. Uh, he basically confessed to a University of Colorado professor who was doing a documentary on John Bonet. Mm-hmm. The professor, once he heard this, he called the police and said, oh, you know, you need to research. <laughs> you got Hold the guy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was discovered later that Carr wasn't even in Boulder at the time of John Bonet's death. And obviously DNA eliminated him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was later arrested for like domestic violence and then he did his time and whatever. This guy, Carr, is a real sicko and he's a creep. And um, he wanted this notoriety and attention that this case brought. And that's why mm-hmm. he kind of like said or admitted to the crime. Right. He had these super disturbing diaries that he claimed he wrote when he was committing the crime and murdering John Bonet. And it's really awful uh, what he wrote in the diary. And if, if this if this doesn't scare you enough, this guy, he's he's released, he's free, and he lives in the Pacific Northwest, and he is under a new identity and also a new gender. So well, we don't and, know who he is. Yeah, I mean, and there is such a thing as false confessions, right? Mm-hmm. Where I admit to doing something because I want that notoriety for whatever mm-hmm. fucked up reason. Like, yeah. I want to be known as the Jean Bonnet killer. Yeah. I mean, but there's a lot of times in confessions and then through other forensic means that just, that's why it's all very important during an investigation that you don't take just a confession as, as it is. You also have to line that up with potential forensic means as well, such as the DNA, like he was eliminated based on the DNA results, right? Yes. And there, and, and there's a lot of just him alone really irks me because I, when it comes to child pornography or offenses against children or murder, Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't be allowed to change your identity. No way. Because then you can hide, right? And that's exactly what he's doing. So I don't think it just drives me crazy. And uh, the next one is called, his name is Bill Mick Reynolds. And Mm -hmm. he is also, he is a Santa Claus impersonator. Those impersonators. Let me tell you. Gotta look out for them. Um, He was actually hired for the Christmas party of 1996, but the Ramsey attended the night before. Uh, It was reported by a witness that McReynolds paid very little, I'm sorry, very little, a lot of attention to John (laughs) Bonet. Yeah, a little too much attention to John Bonet, and he would call her his special friend. Um, There was a witness that night that said that the Santa Claus was pay her a special visit after Christmas which people found odd and they reported that later after obviously mm-hmm. when the, what happened when to John happened. Bonet, yeah. things started piecing together and, and that was reported to police. That year, John Bonet gave Bill Santa Claus a vial of gold glitter and she called it Stardust. And it was a gift that she gave for luck. And um, mm. Bill, he said that John Bonet made such a profound impact on him. And he said, I quote, I feel very close to that little girl. When I die, I'm I want to, I'm going to be cremated. I asked my wife to mix my ashes with the stardust that John Benet gave me. It, uh, is it creepy? Yes. Uh, does it mean 
Does that mean he's a rapist and a murderer? No, but he, no, it, it just is creepy. means he's a creepy guy. He's a creepy yeah. impersonator. Yeah. So DNA cleared him. Yeah. Next person now is Burke Ramsey. Okay, which yeah. is a famous suspect. Burke Ramsey was nine, as we know. At one point, he was counted amongst the suspects, and many thought he accidentally murdered his sister, and then his parents were covering it, covering it up, which is a famous that's, theory. That's believable. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. totally believable with the note and the behaviors during the day. I mean, that's yeah, that's something that would be believable. Yeah. Because you yes. want to protect your child as well as a parent, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1999, Burke Ramsey was secretly questioned by the grand jury. Mm-hmm. Um, the following day, authorities said that Burke was not a suspect and that he was a witness and he was cleared. Right. Um, Burke later sued the pathologist from the CBS docuseries, The Case of John Benning Ramsey. Mm-hmm. So he sued the actual pathologist for $150 million. And then he followed it up with a $750 million lawsuit to CBS for insinuating that he was guilty. And he got $250 million in damages. Uh, I mean, so Burke's lawyers stated, and this, and this quote is just so lawyered up. It's not even funny. Yeah, they stated the, the accusation of Burke Ramsey that he killed his sister was based on a compilation of lies, half truth, manufactured information, and the intentional omission and avoidance of truthful information about the murder of John Bennett, which has absolutely no resonation on what police actually saw, regardless of how contaminated the crime scene was. They still yeah. made great observations, yeah. which contradict this whole, like you said, lawyer filled statement. Yeah. Half truce, manufactured information. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, parents say he was asleep in his bed. Well, they found him awake, you know. They did, right. Exactly. I mean, and that's not to say that he wouldn't wake up, but if he was standing there on the edge of his bed, just awake, waiting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he was waiting for his parents to come and get him. Yeah. He's, you it's know, all... he wouldn't go back to sleep at this no. point. Mm-mm. No. No. Uh, I know. Burke appeared. Okay, don't uh, sue us, Burke. Okay, we're just no, making, Burke, we're I, making no, no. facts here. It's just theories. Okay, so Burke appeared on the Dr. Phil show, and this was a very awkward interview, and it is very, it's very hard to watch, and it is fact. It's out there, so mm-hmm. you can't sue us over that. I've, um, saw, I've a, seen this, too. It's crazy. Yeah, it's hard to watch. He has a very big smile on his face while discussing the murder of his sister. Dr. Phil says that this was more of an awkward facial expression and the reaction to an uncomfortable topic. Dr. Phil said that he did spend some time with Burke and that he wasn't like that personally and that he was a very intelligent man. Mm-hmm. That, you know, this happened when he was nine. And when it happens, once the media got a hold of it, I mean, Burke was probably on in lockdown for mm-hmm. most of his life that he couldn't mm-hmm. speak to anybody. And yeah. if he was already an, an introvert, it could make somebody very awkward, uh, awkward yeah. adult. So, I would be interested to interview one of his girlfriends or male friends mm-hmm. in his adult life, because I'm sure something came out about it. I'm sure they all signed that little, what is that document? Non-disclosure. Do not disclosure. Yeah, you know? non-disclosure. He's got a lot of money. I mean, he just got 250 mil from CBS, so. Because he doesn't have um, enough. That's fine. Yeah. So this would uh, lead us to our last part, the conclusion. So mm-hmm. in 2010, the case was officially officially reopened with a renewed focus on these DNA samples. Further testing was conducted, and they believe at this point that the DNA was of two individuals, not one. In 2016, it was announced that the DNA would be sent to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation to be tested with more modern methods. They feel that the more sophisticated DNA comes along, that they they are going, it will lead them to a killer. Right. 
the bottom line is Boulder Police Department did a poor job securing the crime scene and handling the witnesses and the evidence. And it would make it very difficult for a DA to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody murdered John Binet without the DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. Because every stitch of evidence is at this point contaminated. Right. Every stitch of it. I mean, the ropes, the nylon fabric, or, you yeah. know, there was, yeah. there should have been DNA on that, yeah. let alone her underwear, the blood droppings or whatever, you know, obviously. So in sexual assaults, one of the things they look for in child sex assault is the hymen for the, the vaginal area. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little explicit. Sorry, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the hymen is broken, essentially, that's how yeah. they can tell whether or not um, somebody has had sexual intercourse with a child and during the autopsy, if they've indicated that the hymen was broken or basically no longer there, yeah. that's how they would, would be able to identify that there was previous sexual assault in this, this little girl. Yeah. And the uh, medical examiner did uh, state that there was sexual assault yes. and not only of that night, but possibly longer. So there and might they, have and been they, they internal scars. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause they there would be scarring that. or something yeah. internally. Oh my Lord. Um, okay. So it is a lot. So the Ramsey family were publicly cleared of any suspicion in 2008 from the, at that time, the DA, uh, Mary Lucy, John Ramsey later remarried in 2011. And I Mm -hmm. think that was after he dated Beth Holloway. Mm -hmm. Not sure sure. exactly, but Patsy Ramsey died in 2006, as we know, and she died of ovarian cancer. A author by the name of Paula Woodward, she wrote The Unsolved, the John Benet Ramsey murder 25 years later, Mm -hmm. um, which you can, which you can read today. She spoke to Patsy Ramsey during her last days and Patsy, she said, basically gave up hope, but Patsy did believe, and that gives me chills. Yeah, that just gives me chills. She, Patsy, did believe in life after death, so she was looking forward to seeing John Bonet again. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a mother, I think would you know? Yeah, and it, it's just it's sad because if she really did do it, she's dying. So yeah. why wouldn't she say it? And right. and she has another kid in the world that she's trying to protect. Why wouldn't she take that burden off of them and say, "I did it"? Yeah. So and there was another another comment that she made to this author that that is not a public, publicly known is that she stated that the killer took something from John Bonet. So that night on her body, she either was wearing a piece of jewelry or something on her person mm-hmm. that is no longer there. And Patsy truly feels that if you locate this item, that you will find her killer. And that is not a well-known fact. I mean, and that's um, assuming that when she put her to bed, she had this necklace or bracelet or earring or whatever on her, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. at this time when she put John Bonet to bed, yeah. So well, they, when they, they found can't find her, it. yeah, it was not on her. Okay. Yeah. So there is there is this suspicious item that or John that took it don't and know. He went and hit it with the high tech boots and and the flashlight, flashlight and the, yeah. and the stun gun. Yeah. Um. So <laughs> be, yeah. So basically, you know, during the 25 years of investigations, there have been so many theories and leads and dead ends. Mm. And so many people have dedicated (sighs) their lives, like really uh, investigators have dedicated their lives to figuring this out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have passed away and don't know the answer. Um, I don't, I don't know that we ever will unless, I know unless the suspect you know at some point commits another crime and the dna is taken yeah it's a match yeah and, i mean you know in the, the green river killer was found or you yes, know was. Yes, years, was. years later based on dna 
Um, yes. I, is that the right one? The Green River Killer? Golden was, Gate, Golden State. Golden, Golden State Killer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Golden State Killer was yeah. found 40 years later. Yeah. So this may I mean, be one of those. Possible. Yes. And, and that's where we need to respect. Listen, this is an ongoing investigation yeah. and it is not a cold case. And mm -hmm. we just have to say that, you know, I just, I kind of just think it will be solved. And, and that's basically it, mm -hmm. you know, rest in peace, John Benet. Yes, hope, uh, bless her heart. So young. Bless your heart. So yeah. Young, hard six years of her life. Yeah. She would be 31 years old right now. Yeah. Gosh, uh, that brings it into perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. There is a theory, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's kind of silly, a silly theory. Uh <laughs> that Katy Perry is the reincarnation version. Actually, not reincarnated. They, is they John Bene is John Bonet. They stated that John Bonet was so popular. The theory is that John Bonet was so popular when she was four years old that she wanted a new life. And they took her into like, they picked her up and placed her <laughs> and then she became Katy Perry. Katie Perry. And, and put herself back in the line blank. I don't think so. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, how that's about, that's it. And that's it. And Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. What I'm sorry. I don't oh mean to, I know it's a downer. It's a yeah. total downer. And I'm sorry. Well, we can only like... hope in our lifetime that we actually find a resolution to this case. I just think it we we as a society who have been invested in mm -hmm. everything about this is one of, like you said, after OJ Simpson, I mean, the 24 hour news cycle, everybody knows about Jean-Benet Ramsey yeah. and to see it continuously go unsolved brings heartbreak. I think to just uh, us as a society, and it would be great perseverance in yes. showing once the, the perpetrator is actually caught. Yes. And for now, JonBenet Ramsey is frozen in time. Basically, yeah. Lucy is um, that little princess, but a tragic little princess. It is. Mm -hmm. It really is. So yeah. Uh, God, I need to get more alcohol at this point. Okay. <laughs> cheers. Uh, so I. So cheers. And just so you know, chatters, I don't want to leave anybody hanging because I have collected a lot of information, uh, pictures, the reports of the autopsy autopsy yes. report, the actual ransom letter, everything that I discussed today and some of the theories that are going to be, I'm going to post them and it's going to be on the after that crime chat. And it's on, also going to be included on the Patreon. On Patreon. Yeah. So we would love to hear your comments and hear your mm -hmm. theories about what you think about the story. Um, if you have questions or any other like, well, what ifs, we would love to hear that. We would love to engage in conversation. And don't forget, not just the Patreon, but follow us on Crime Chat with Nat and Cat on Facebook, Instagram, mm -hmm. YouTube, Twitter, all of your social needs just to see what we have coming up next. Yes. And don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon because we're going to have hilarious bloopers, hilarious bloopers, behind the scenes footage. We're going to have merch. We have, we do have merch in the works and I can't yes. wait because yes, I, I need to get some merch because I just need, I need it. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to keep the crime chat chatting, uh, mm -hmm. we would appreciate your subscription and mm -hmm. any donations that we would have um, yes. to help us keep the crime chat chatters going. Yes, absolutely. And uh, don't forget to just subscribe and check out our next episode, which do you want to go over? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So our next episode is going to be our first segment into the uh -huh. crime and cosmetics. Uh, it's going to be toxic. Uh-huh. We can't make it up. Meh. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're really not going to want to miss this. 
No, you're not. And it's, it's going to be really good. It's, it's, it's good. Uh, and also the upcoming, um, uh, just segment of sinful spirits is going to yes. be, it's going to be creepy calling, good. And I can't wait to hear that. Yes. You don't want to mm-hmm. miss it, but for now we will see you at the next crime chat. That's right. So see you, see you guys later and bye chatter. Bye chatter.